Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Here's an interesting fact for you. 70% of the most important innovations come from employees who are inside an organization, not from entrepreneurs. Let me repeat that. 70%, 70% of the most important informations come from inside the organization, not outside. So today, A, I want to talk about that fact. And then B, I want to talk about how as a leader, you can increase the opportunities and the success of employee innovations. And equally, we want to talk about if you're an employee, how do you increase the speed and acceptance of your innovative ideas? So my guest today, Kyan Krippendorf, is uniquely qualified, I think, to speak on this topic. He's the CEO and founder of OutThinker and the OutThinker Strategy Network. And he's also the author of several books. The one we're focusing on today is, in particular, is Driving Innovation from Within, a Guide for Internal Entrepreneurs. Now, the Outthinker Strategy Network is a global community of heads of strategy of large corporations like Pfizer, CVS, QVC, Macmillan, BNY Mellon, and Viacom. And his work has generated incredible amounts of revenue for these companies. Kyan was elected the 2019 Thinkers 50 radar as one of the top 30 management thinkers to look for in the future and a host of other accolades like being among the most influential innovation experts in the world. He began his career as a consultant with McKinsey, and he is now a top business strategy, growth, and transformation keynote speaker that has helped inspire, motivate, and arm hundreds of thousands of people with the tools and the mindset to win in the future. Sakayan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. I am excited about this one, and especially at this moment in time when we're all a little bit crazy with a lot that's going on, being able to do a bit of that future-focused looking and thinking about innovation seems like a really good strategy. I started with this notion, with the statistic, 70% of the most important information uh, innovations come from inside the organizations. Now, I learned that statistics from you. So to unpack that for me, 70% really, and how do you qualify important? And are these things we just spin out by frustrated employees or what? What's the story here? Well, yeah, so I looked at, uh, found a list of the 30 most transformative innovations over the last three decades that was validated by a group of professors based off of thousands of submissions. They kind of debated which were the innovations that really impacted society. And these are the big innovations. These are the Internet email, uh, DNA sequencing, MRIs, solar energy. And I went back and I looked at who conceived of the idea and tagged each one. And what I found was that actually 70% of them were conceived of by employees working inside established companies. Um, And yet we have this kind of vision of the entrepreneur being the primary innovator in society. And I I am an entrepreneur. I love working with entrepreneurs. So nothing uh, meant to uh, detract from the import of entrepreneurialism. But we miss a big part, the biggest part of innovation by exclusively focusing on entrepreneurs. We really should be also looking at internal uh, innovators, employees. 
The um, I worked with a number of technology companies over a couple decades, and I know of examples where an innovation was created inside, an innovation that actually ultimately became a game changer in the marketplace, but it's created inside the company, and then the company doesn't know what to do with it, and it just dies on the vine. Is that what you saw, see, a lot of the time, that these ideas surface and they just never go anywhere? Um, yeah, no, that does happen. I mean, you, you can a good success rate for an innovation is fifteen percent. So even if we didn't have any of these barriers, uh, we could expect eighty five percent of our innovations to fail. Um, and so sometimes those innovations get taken out of the company, and uh, someone leaves, and they start their own uh, business. I think Adobe came uh, out of such uh, such frustration, and it is frustrating to uh, manage through the barriers internally. Uh, but I would say it's also equally frustrating to go get through the barriers as an entrepreneur. So I think that you know innovation is tough, um, and it's not meant to be, or we can't expect it to be, just a uh, open road, um, but uh, there are things that you can do as an internal innovator to navigate your innovation through the bureaucracy and hierarchy and, and culture and structures. Uh, and that's what I seek to do in this book is kind of lay out what those are and what you need to do to navigate it through. Oh, great. I want to talk about that, the steps and the barriers. But before I do that, I'd just like an example. Can you give me a couple of examples of innovations that you think have been really important that have happened inside? Show me what those look like. Um, well, I mean, let's, let's go back to the original PC. Um, that was invented by a company called Olivetti, an Italian company. And although when we think of the... Um, the, the companies that introduced the uh, us into the era of the PC, um, Wang, for example, um, IBM later. Um, what you, if you trace it back, it was actually Olivetti who invented this computer. They 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 they, they displayed it um, at a uh, at a World Fair. They put it in the back of their display. They didn't think that they really had something uh, exciting, but when they pulled it out and they showed how this thing could calculate. Um, uh, the, the, the path of stars, uh, a calculation that otherwise would take a really long time, and, they, and this thing could calculate immediately. They got a lot of attention, uh, and um, so there's there's you know there, there's you know, one example. Um, another guy that I studied, uh, he was an uh, an employee at Exxon, and he was working on solar energy, and he arguably contributed the most to advancing solar technology and that he figured out how to take, um, when he started his work, it cost $100 per kilowatt hour to produce uh, one kilowatt of, 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 of solar energy, and he was able to bring that down to $20. Um, so he really contributed a lot. Now, what, what happened with him, which was interesting, is that naturally working for an oil and gas company, they were less inclined to support his work because this is a substitute to their core product. <clears throat> so what he did that was clever, he said, well, let's not, let's not build this as a product. Um, let's build this as an internal solution to a problem that we have, which is that the oil platforms, the off-sea oil platforms, they have an energy problem. And if we put solar panels on them, we can solve that problem. And so you'll find, if you trace back, you see a lot of these people that aren't well-known who um, carefully maneuvered their innovations through 
and society benefited by that. Um, we could talk about MRIs. We could talk about stents. We could talk about the internet. We could talk about mobile phones. We could talk about email, right? All of these things that many of the entrepreneurial adventures are built on were actually formulated and advanced by employees. Great. That's a very clever one on the solar energy to turn it into a known problem inside the company and use that as a reason to advance the cause. I can see that. Is that a common theme? Do you see that often or is it just one of the tricks? Um, yeah, it's one of the tricks, but I would say two things. is When you look at the type of talent that is effective at driving innovation from within, they tend to be very uh, strong and actually enjoy uh, politics. They, they view the political challenge as part of the problem-solving process. Um, I do see this pattern. What they do is after they have gone through and developed the idea, they look for an island of freedom inside the company, a place where they can take innovation. Maybe it's not the obvious place, like the, the guy who, uh, Ken Kuturagi, the Sony employee that uh, convinced Sony to launch the first PlayStation. It would have been obvious for him to take that into the main body of Sony, the electronics division, because that's where you have all of the suppliers and all the know-how, but he recognized there was no island of freedom there. Instead, he brought it to the entertainment division, the people that develop movies and songs and artists. They have a culture that is more encouraging of kind of artistic, different thinking, and so he brought it there and built it. So that's a very common pattern, finding an island of freedom. I love that. So uh, an appreciation of the politics, maybe even an enjoy the puzzle of the politics and the willingness to find an eye or the ability to find an island of freedom that gives you some space to develop the idea without too many constraints. Great, great advice. Okay, so let's talk, you know, in your studies of all of these significant innovations, you found a number of steps and a number of barriers. Well, actually, the barriers lead to the steps. So tell us how you can can cultivate more innovation by looking at this particular process. Yeah, so so I interviewed 150 internal innovators, and I asked them, what has been the primary barrier that you've seen, and how have you overcome that? And so you can imagine this Excel list of 150 interviews and then uh, columns of things that are mentioned. And you see these seven barriers that emerge uh, the most frequently uh, by, by a significant margin. And I lay them out, uh, and I, I use them to spell the word innovate with one N, just so that's easy to remember. Um, so intent is about activating the intent to innovate. If you don't have an intention to do something different, then you're not going to even see opportunities to do so. The next barrier is what need is what I call, which they, that many people don't understand what the company needs. So they come up with innovations that aren't ones that the company are likely to uh, adopt. Then the next is O, is options, is the ability to generate lots of very different options. Then um, the next one, V, is value blockers. And I use value blockers. I, I would have called it business model, but uh, I wanted to spell innovate, so I call it value blockers. A value blockers is really about the idea that your innovation will have a natural business model around it, but that business model may be in conflict with the existing business model. And so you can, you can do some clever things to redesign the idea to avoid it being rejected. Act is about taking action on the idea to prove it when your organization probably wants you to prove it before they'll let you take action. 
Uh, team is about activating a agile cross-functional team. When you're not able to go to the boss and say, hey, I'd like these 15 people to work with me on it because these people are in different divisions. You've got someone in marketing and someone in operations and someone in uh, finance, and you can't get uh, an authority to give them time to work work with you. So you have to build a kind of groundswell of support around the idea. And then the final one is really a big one. I call it environment, finding that island of freedom, looking at talent and leadership and structure and culture and finding the right place to cultivate that. So intent, need, options, value blockers, act, team, environment is INOVAT. Great. I like that. Intent, need, what the company needs, the intent to do something differently, the needs of the company and how whatever this fits in with their needs, the options, getting a lot of them, figuring out how not to find run into value blockers as in how to have the business model not be in conflict with existing models, activate ways to prove it. Taking action to prove it. Taking action. The team, getting t- people to play with you in effect without having authority over them, as my words for Very that, well and Love environment, it. meaning creating this island of freedom. So as you look at those, what are the two or three that are the hardest to do or the most critical to do? Where do most people um, miss? I would say if I had to pick two, I would pick value blockers and environment. Um, when I run my workshops or speeches, I ask people, what do they see as the big barriers? And the things that come up the most fit into environment. They talk about culture. They talk about uh, risk aversion, short-term thinking, leadership that doesn't support me, um, the, the wrong kinds of people, the organizational structures that prevent me from having that extra time to work on things. So that is a, quite a, a bit of entanglement uh, environment. And then value blockers is a big barrier, but it's actually one that is easy to, um, to uncover with some training, which is value blockers, is thinking about when you have your idea, there's a natural way for you to promote it or price it, uh, position it, different uh, types of uh, uh, people structures that you would put around it. And if you were an entrepreneur, you could just design it from scratch. But you can study some uh, business model canvassing or lean canvassing, as it's called. Alex Osterwalder really introduced this, this concept of designing, creatively designing a business model. But when you learn that, then you can, in a short order, uh, actually re-engineer it so that uh, it, 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 it doesn't conflict with the business model, at least not as much. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's. It seems to me that if you start with the environment, that you figure out how to get that one right, then it's easier to back your way into dealing with the business model because you've got more support around you. You've got more time. You've got more capability. So how do we deal with the environment? I mean, what are the solutions for kind of getting past that long list you just gave around culture and short-term thinking and no time and work overload and risk aversion mm-hmm. and so on? Yeah, I mean, it depends what, what what your perspective is, right? For a leader, you're looking at what are the environmental factors and how do I change the environment, the organizational environment. As an internal innovator, you may not have a lot of influence over that. Like, you may not be able to change the culture of the company. And so what, the, the, what, what you want to look for is look for the right uh, situation inside the company. I looked at every study I could find that shows some correlation between an organizational factor and higher or lower levels of internal innovativeness. And actually, there's quite a bit known. And I looked only where I found a study that said, we looked at 2,000 data points and we found a statistically significant R-squared correlation. And, um, and, And so, you know, 
for each of these different areas, talent, structure, culture, and leadership, there are different things that need to be in place. Um, maybe the one that's easiest to get your head around as an internal innovator is structure. Okay. Um, there are four things that you're looking for. Number one, where can you get innovation resources? Do you find a leader who says, you can spend 20% of your time working on this, or I'll give you $5,000, five days, uh, and five people to try something, right? Um, okay. The 555 experiment. Rewards. Do you have reward structures that encourage innovation? Maybe it's not financial rewards, but maybe it's a, a leader who uh, celebrates innovators, who maybe uh, spends time putting uh, an innovation project on the agenda, you know, gives it attention. The third thing is the allowance of risk-taking. Look for where someone has taken a risk and failed, and that didn't hurt their career. Rather, the leader of that division said, well, we learned something from that. And then the final is organizational freedom. Can you find a place in the company where you can go to your boss and say, hey, there's this project that I want to work on, and it's over there not in your, in your hierarchy, you know, in a different organization, could I spend some of my time going to help work on that uh, project? And if those are the four things, if you can find the part where in your company you can find those four things, then you have a much higher chance of being able to be successful as an internal innovator. This sounds like the perfect shopping list for how to find my next job, I guess, right. especially if I have an innovation. Right. But, you know, just to re- repeat this, if I'm an employee, I'm looking for a leader who's willing to give some resources, limited time, limited money, limited people to test, to try. I'm looking yes. for some rewards, not just cash, but other things, willing to celebrate it, willing to give it attention, willing to give it um, some feedback, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking for places where risk-taking doesn't kill careers, where you took yes. a risk, it didn't work, and that leader let you kind of continue and your career goes on. And then four is some freedom uh, to work across silos. You didn't use that word. I did. Where I can spend time helping other people solve problems. So you know that there's going to be some cross-functional. I wish I had you before I published this book because you've articulated it much more cleanly than I did. You got it exactly right. That's great. I will, you fed it to me, so it was pretty easy to send it back. <laughs> I, that is, those are just four amazing things to think about when you're deciding, am I going to join this organization or am I going to go and work for this employee employer or do I want that particular job with that division, with that leader? That's a pretty good list to look for. And you might yeah. trade off one or two. But all of them, you got the consequences. Okay. Yes. So now suppose I'm the leader. Suppose I have inherited a division here and I want to create some more innovation. And I've given all my big speeches about how important innovation is and I'm looking for innovative ideas and so on. What do I need to be doing as a leader to make sure we move in the right direction? Well, the the leader needs to put in the right structures, develop the right talent and the right culture. The structures are easy to implement because you can dictate those, right? You can say, okay, we're going to give $5,000, you know, to, to run an experiment. We're going to uh, celebrate with re- rewards of celebration. We're going to, uh, uh, you know, learn from our risks and we're going to allow some organizational freedom. Those are kind of things that you can control. The, the, but the, the part that you have l- indirect control over is culture. And what's interesting is that there are four cultural attributes that are shown to correlate with organizations that have more innovative uh, uh, behavior. 
Um, some of them are kind of obvious. Uh, one is it, it, a culture that encourages innovative thinking. Right, that encourages people to start with a blank sheet of paper. And in some parts of your company, that is a good thing. Sometimes it's a company, it's a risky thing. So if you're, say, designing rocket ships, you're going to want people who are building the rocket ships to be following a very careful checklist, not being so innovative in implementing that. But in other areas, you can allow people to start from scratch. So you could come up with a cultural norm that says, uh, you know, we start with a blank sheet of paper, rethink, uh, come up with a, a, what I call a fourth option. Uh, the, the second one is a, a t- autonomy and proactivity. And this one, you can notice, I think, pretty quickly if you do this or not, do you allow people to take action and try something without being asked for it, ask permission, right? Or do do you requ- require people to first get approval up the ranks? So uh, autonomy and proactivity. The third one is, mar- I call it market awareness. You could call it also customer awareness, but I think we should think about it a little more broadly rather than customer centricity. It's also market um, uh, mm-hmm. sensibility. Do you, do you encourage people to go to conferences? Do you bring in a customer into the room? I've, I've heard that at, um, at Amazon, when they have a meeting, they have one, table, one sheet at the table that's empty, which represents the empty seat of the customer who's not there, so that when they make a decision, they always as a reminder to think from the customer's perspective. So there are neat things that you can do to encourage that market awareness. And then the fourth thing is risk-taking. Um, what is your, the relationship to risk that you imbue? Is risk something to be avoided or is risk something to be learned from? Uh, so I would say as a, as, a, as a leader, a very simple thing you can do is you can look at your normal, your, 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 your values or your cultural norms and see do they align with innovativeness, autonomy, market awareness, risk-taking, and if not, introduce a cultural program to start shifting that. Okay. All right. I will have, over the years, talked to a number of leaders, either divisions or even CEOs of companies, who believe in the innovation, and they personally believe in all four of those, and they believe that they are modeling, you know, start with a blank piece of paper, they believe they model autonomy and proactivity, they believe that they're very customer or market aware, they believe that they have a good, healthy tolerance for learning through risks, at least that's what they mm-hmm. believe about themselves. Yeah. We could always challenge yeah. that. And the problem comes not because of that leader or that leader's team's behavior. The problem comes two steps below, maybe three steps below, mm-hmm. where management is not quite with the program. They're protecting their own career. And that ris- mistake, that risk is too challenging for their personal career. So now what's your advice for the leader when you know I'm with the program, my directs are with the program, but layers down, eh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah. If this is, yeah, you, you, you pinpointed it. When we have our conversations with our strategists, we bring these them together and we talk. They, what, one thing that comes up often is that leaders want it, the bottom of the pyramid want it, but there is this concrete middle that prevents it from happening. And those could be the lieutenants or, you know, the mid, mid, mid-level. And it, it sometimes is, for reasons that you said, is that it 
it, it puts their power at risk or they're at a stage in their career where they become more risk averse and they don't want to try new things or allow people to try new things, or maybe they need the credit in order to get to the next level. And so they um, maybe have a tendency to empower people less. So it is yeah, really concentrating that middle. Um, I don't have a, a clear answer, but what some of the CEOs that I interviewed have talked about doing is identifying a few people in that middle that you kind of recruit into the movement and get them together and build a sub-community around them so that they start behaving in the way that you want them to behave. And then as their divisions start performing well and others start realizing, wow, you know, Jane or Jack, they allowed their people to innovate. They allowed their people to try new things and look what happened. This works. Then you can, you know, bring them in and, and convert them over. Uh, but I think it's like, you know, finding those ninjas or whatever at that middle level that are ready to get on board with you. Yeah, I set you up unfairly on this one, Kyan, um, Kyan, because we always, in every organization I've been in, we go to that middle and we say, well, the problem, the reason we can't do X and Y or Z is because of the middle. And they get dumped and blamed for absolutely everything. And sometimes I think that they are acting in ways they have been trained to act and rewarded mm-hmm. to act. And sometimes I just don't think they have the line of sight on what is a good option in the same way somebody who has a broader perspective has. So I don't want to blame them. I, I want to be careful mm-hmm. about that one. But it, it is there is a need to work through the mid-ranks. Not just yep. from the top and from the bottom. Okay, so we've been spending all this time. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, I find that the the the, the people, mid, the mid mid level people, and and everyone who do this well, they really bring a kind of a love of the company and a love of the customer to it. They're not doing it to get rich. They're doing it because they really believe that this innovation is going to better society, better the customer, and better the company. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that you know what, what you're saying is if they, some, some people get dumped on a lot, a lot of it is because they grew up in structures or they're put in structures where, you know, you ask for A, but you reward B. Um, and, 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 and the people who do it well, you know, we really should be honoring them because of their passion and purpose. So that's I love that. You said finally passion and purpose. They do it because they have a love of the company and a love of the customer, which means they have to have a pretty close attunement to something about the marketplace. I think that's often a line of sight that helps this middle layer get a better understanding of what's going to work, what the company needs are to come back to one of your barriers. Mm-hmm. I, we've spent all of this time talking about the environment. And the talent, the structures, the culture, both, you know, the things to look for as an employee to find a place where your ideas are going to get some air cover and to get some air, get developed, as well as things to look at as a leader. I want to go back to the second barrier you said was particularly important. This is the notion of the value block and blockers. And for that one, you were talking about finding another way to create the business design model. And you talked about lean canvassing. Can you just kind of flush that out a little bit and tell us how how to go about this? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I encourage anyone to look at the, the Lean Canvas or Business Model Design. Alex Osterwaldler with a group of other people wrote several books on this. And so business model used to be, say, in the 1950s, business model was something that people just fell into. There was one business model for a company. And then we started shifting what we thought of business models in the 1990s when the dot-com boom happened. And there were new business models introduced like eBay or, you know, Amazon and then a whole slew that aren't around anymore. But when things change, you get a chance to rethink things. And what's become, what, it, what that's led to is this idea is that a business model isn't rigid. It is something that you can be creative with and you can play with. Um, there are lots of different frameworks of business models. The, the, the one that I use, that I developed, and I, I'm not saying this is right. I believe all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. I'm not saying this is the truth, but it's a useful model, is to think of eight Ps. Um, positioning, which is who's my core customer, what's my brand, your product, your pricing mechanism, your placement or how you distribute or deliver your channels, your promotion strategy, which includes sales and marketing, your processes, which includes your operations, the physical experience of your customer, and then supporting all of that, your people, what your culture is, who you, who you hire, how you organize them, how you incentivize them. And when you come up with an idea, maybe it's a product idea, you might default to the obvious choices on the other P's. But you have an opportunity to think creatively about how to design the business model around it. Um, one quick example of that is Xbox. Xbox was created by a company, Microsoft, that wasn't a very cool brand. Uh, Xbox was going to be the first gaming console. It had to be a cool brand. It was a company that has never built hardware, and they're going to have to build their own hardware for this because they couldn't convince someone to sell, build an Xbox hardware because that's like selling razors without selling the razor blades. But they did one smart thing in their business model. They originally said, we're going to create a business model that's going to compete exactly with PlayStation. PlayStation, the real customer for a console game, is not you or me or our, our kids that are playing the games. It is the game developers. Because if the game developers start building games for your platform, people will come. And so they shifted their model and they said, you know what, we're not going to target the same game developers that develop for PlayStation, the, the big EA Sports kind of, um, of developers. We're going to target the mom-and-pop individual PC game developers that are already developing for the PC platform, which Microsoft owns. And that allowed them, that little shift allowed them to bring on board hundreds and hundreds of developers, have a really great lineup of games, and allowed them to, 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 you know, to really hit the, hit the ground running. And now you know, they're the, the largest online community of, of gamers. Um, so that's, that's an example of if you step back and think through those and say, where am I going to hit a problem, and how can we make a small adjustment, then that way we can design a business model that will just speed through. Okay, so positioning, where we are in the marketplace, the product itself, the features, the pricing, the placing, how we go to distribution, the promotion, the, the advertising and campaigns and so on, the processes, the physical experience of customers, and the people themselves. Pretty clever. So I run into a value blocker on, let's say, pricing, and I'm going to look for a creative solution. Is that how this model works? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. You just like take pricing and you say, what's the obvious way of pricing this? And then you say, well, how do we currently price our products? And if they're not the same, 
then you think about how you can maybe adjust your pricing to make them less different. Or at least you know that you're going to face a pricing challenge, and so you can start doing the political work ahead of time to overcome that when it pops up. Great. All right, this is a perfect spot for a break. I want to repeat, with me today is Kahan Krippendorf. He's the founder and CEO of OutThinker and the OutThinker Strategy Network. The book that we've been talking about is Driving Innovation from Within, a guide for internal entrepreneurs. I repeat, 70% of some of the most important innovations have happened inside companies as opposed to from the external entrepreneurial model. And the, the kind of barriers that we want to deal with have to do with intent, the company needs, valuing options, identifying different business models through different value blockers, eliminating those, action to prove, having a team that's agile and flexible and is supporting you even though they're not necessarily owned by you, and the environment, the island of freedom. I think the thing that really just like wows me is your four things on this structure. The resources rewards, a leader that allows freedom, uh, risk-taking, and then some organizational freedom to spend time outside of your particular silo. What a great list. Great. This is fab. This is a wonderful discussion. When we come back, I want to talk about language and the ways that language changes our thinking, and particularly something you've already mentioned, this thing called the fourth option. What is that, and how does that play here? We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., Helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, Ken. Welcome back. My guest today is Kahan Krippendorf, um, CEO and founder of OutThinker and the OutThinker Strategy Network. The book is Driving Innovation from Within. All right. 
I need to know what got you started on this journey. Why did you start looking at internal innovation? And by the way, what's this thing you keep calling the fourth option? Yeah. Yeah, the fourth option is really kind of really where it started is um, I became interested in how do people generate very different ideas. I call these ideas the fourth option. Um, Gandhi, he had a phrase that I really like, which is, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And I found many innovative thinkers talk about something that he's pointing to, which is you do something that those who would resist you or copy you or fight you, compete with you on, that instead they ignore and laugh at you so that you can build momentum. And by the time they wake up and say, wait a second, that option's actually going to work, it's too late, you've already won. And I call this a fourth option. It's just a helpful metaphor. It symbolizes the point at which others stop thinking. Right, three is a magic number. Great orders mm-hmm. repeat in threes. When I was at McKinsey, they trained me to break everything down into threes and three sets of threes and three sets of threes. It almost lulls you, mesmerizes you into feeling like you have enough options. Now, it's, this is just a metaphor. There might be more than three, but it symbolizes the point at which others stop thinking. And that is when innovators recognize that moment and they introduce a fourth option if that makes sense. Like uh, Dick Fosbury, 1968, goes over the high bar backward. That's something that you could have done many years before, but no one thought of it. And so what I've been really interested in is what prevents people from seeing and, and, and pursuing these kinds of different options. That's what the fourth option stands for. I love that. I am fascinated with what gets what it is that motivates people to push for that fourth option. So, you know, when you run into the people ignore you and laugh at you and fight at you, and I think that's the typical thing that happened. It's what happened with Fosbury, for example. Right. Why did he push through to make this thing work? I mean, what is that in us that makes it happen? Do you have an answer to that? Well, yeah, I think there's a few things. One is that uh, he was not very – wasn't good enough to win in in the other way. Had he been good enough, he might not have had the guts to try the fourth option. Almost like he didn't have another option if he was going to have a chance of winning the Olympics in 1968. Um, but if we look at why other people didn't try it, is that these fourth options, the reason that they work is because they make people ignore and laugh at them. The reason that people ignore and laugh at them is because they Other people think that they're impossible, and the reason people think it's impossible is simply because it's inconsistent with what's been done before. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's possible. What we know what's worked before is possible. So when we look for possible, we look for consistency with what's been done before. So think about every gold medal winner before 1968, it went over forward. Every trainer of every Olympic athlete trained them to go over forward. We didn't have ESPN back then, but if we did, every pundit would have said you go over forward. So it is this social agreement that there is one way of doing things. We found the ultimate way, and it just takes a lot of guts and willingness to turn your back, literally, on tradition to be able to embrace that fourth option. I often say that people are at their best inside an organization, meaning they're going to do their most significant work. They're going to have the biggest impact when they have nothing left to lose. Yes, yes, right. And in some ways, that's what you're saying here. I have nothing left to lose. Laugh at me, fight me, ignore me. It doesn't matter. I have nothing left to lose. I'm going to keep trying. 
Is that consistent yes. with your experience? Yes, yes. No, that's true. That's true. But I do think that some people also just get intrinsic value out of trying something different. I did find that in my research that uh, internal innovators just enjoy. They get a kick out of changing things. Um, th- th- there is the point, I think, though, before that precedes that moment of giving up on the fourth option is the conception of the fourth option. And what that comes from is from vocabulary, is okay. that... Um, I think of language as tools. So, for example, there was a time before the, the word inventory turns existed. And mm-hmm. companies were growing, but they were losing cash, and they couldn't understand why. Somebody introduced this idea of inventory turns, which basically says if you have slow inventory turns, you are growing, but you have to spend so much on inventory that you burn cash. So you want to reduce inventory turns. Once that term was introduced, or once the Fosbury flop was introduced as a term, it allows you to think differently. It's a tool for thinking. And so the, what precedes your willingness to, to, to pursue the fourth option is the conception of the fourth option. And that usually comes from introducing some new vocabulary or new language. Okay, so can you give me a business example about that, a sort of a more modern-day example than inventory yeah. terms? Sure. Yeah, so um, I think well, I trace these uh, the, um, emerging terminologies and languages, and one that I've been following for a while is called coordinate the uncoordinated. It represents this idea that power doesn't come from control, but it comes from coordination. Now, we could say that business models like Uber and Airbnb are examples of coordinating the uncoordinated because they don't own the cars, they don't own the rooms, they coordinate them. This mm-hmm. is an idea that is inconsistent with the way that hotels have historically thought about their business or taxicab companies. So it's not that, they, that, his, that, that, that incumbents can't uh, think this way, but it is missing in their vocabulary, if you will. Blockchain is the next iteration of that. Uh, and so I think that, um, that we can shift thinking by starting to introduce in our strategizing this idea of coordinating the uncoordinated and say, hey, before we decide to build that building, that, that hotel, what would it look like to coordinate the uncoordinated? Does that make sense? So it just gives you another question to ask, in effect. It does, right. And it's a question that you haven't asked before, which requires you to have a different answer than the answers that you already have. Great. So you said that you accumulate these, and now I'm intrigued. You said there is the coordinate, the uncoordinated. I love that because that's a really different conceptualization of what Uber and Airbnb are doing. A lot of people are talking about those as using underutilized resources. But actually, at its core, what makes it successful is the ability to coordinate the uncoordinated. Okay? And then you said blockchain. Are there others of these emerging concepts that you're willing to tell us? Yeah, there are five, actually. Um, the, the One is fairly obvious, is, is move early to the next battleground, which is not playing for today, but playing for tomorrow. And 10 or 15, 20 years ago, things weren't changing very much, very, very quickly, right? So you, uh, you, you could play for today, and then you could wait for tomorrow. Um, but now the future is getting to us so quickly that you already need to be playing for tomorrow. So companies that talk about moving early to the next battleground, they are winning. 
Another one is, um, I call it force it to front battle, but what we see is that successful companies don't define themselves by their industry. They define themselves by something else that allows them to behave differently. Um, the, uh, one example of that is Starbucks. They don't view themselves as being in the business of serving coffee. They view themselves as being in the business of serving the people who are serving coffee. And since that's the business that they're in, they make a whole slew of decisions that seem illogical to their competitors. The, the fourth one's been around, has, has been developing, I've been tracking for a while. I think it's finally really reaching a broad adoption, which is to be good. The idea that you don't get to choose between making money and doing good, that even if your goal is just to maximize profits, the smart strategy is one that is good for society, for the world, for communities. And then the last one I call create something out of nothing, which is that we tend to play looking at the pieces on the board, but there are opportunities to add new things to the board, like you know, Gatorade created out of nothing the category of um, of sports drink. They were selling salty water on sports fields for decades before Pepsi and Coke got that concept. Um, and so those are, those are the five that I think are important for us to incorporate into our vocabulary if we want to start behaving like the Alibabas and the Airbnbs and the Amazons of the world. Okay. I love it. So five questions. Move early to the next battleground, meaning I'm playing for tomorrow, not for today. Yes. I'm gonna, I've missed your phrasing on this one, but I want to define myself by something other than the immediate obvious of what it is I'm delivering. Like yes. Starbucks, I'm in the business to serve people who serve coffee, um, yes. to be good or to do good, that I'm serving society and the world, um, our communities, not just making money. And I think a lot right. of people are catching on to that. I don't think they understand how to drag it into the core of what they do, though, however, and then create mm-hmm. something out of nothing, create a new category where a category didn't exist or a new service where a service didn't exist. Or, or okay? a new customer or a new occasion or a new need. Customer, need, or occasion. I love it. Okay. So what's the story with Alibaba? What is it that they did? How did they change the language that has made them so incredibly successful? Yeah, it's interesting. If you, um, the, the, the former chief strategy officer of Alibaba, he wrote a great book, um, and I'll remember the name probably in a minute. Uh, but the way that he describes they conceptualized their business was much more of this coordinating the uncoordinated, that they weren't in the business. They were born not in the business of selling things, but being a platform for people to buy and sell things. And then they layered over it um, uh, uh, intelligence, artificial intelligence, and lots of data capabilities to become this kind of um, human machine uh, automatically adapting um, uh, you know, kind of company. I think uh, another company I think that is, it would be interesting for, for listeners to, to look at is Hire, the uh, Chinese company that mm-hmm. bought GE appliances. And what they yeah. did was that they've had t- 10 years of, of 20% um, revenue growth. And what they've done is they've taken their company and they've broken them down into 4,000 micro companies, each with their own CEO that are um, each kind of doing their own thing. I could go into it more detail. But conceptualizing their company as a platform of small businesses with entrepreneurs, um, that allows them to stay dynamic, right? 
Uh, it's interesting. We tried to kill those kind of models uh, back about 30 years ago, and now here we are back again saying there's a new way to do those models. Yeah, the pendulum that. swims, right, from from centralization to decentralization and back. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if we start thinking about the purpose of the corporation differently, that those we, we, we step away from the central versus decentral um, you know, trade-off, um, but it is a new way to organize. And um, I, I think that uh, you know, if you take each of those five uh, barriers that we talked about in the earlier segment and you mm-hmm. play them out, uh, how companies are removing them and the, and the, and the language that they're introducing, we're going to evolve into platforms that, uh, that companies just enable employees to see and seize opportunities and empower them. This is a new meaning for purpose, because we often talk about purpose in terms of the greater purpose in society, that sort of notion of to be good. But what's fascinating to me about this way of thinking is I get really clear about what it is I am here to do, not to make money or you know to serve shareholders. I am here to create a business that serves people who serves coffee. I'm here to create a platform that allows mom and pop shops to sell stuff. I'm here to create a platform that allows small businesses to really thrive. All three examples that you've just given, but that that's our core purpose, reason for being. And then you drive everything centrally around that, not as in central controls, but you put everything mm-hmm. in place that allows that to be possible and you make the business decisions accordingly. I think yes. what we missed in the central decentralization pendulum swing back and forth was we were just looking for controls on cost. Mm. Yes. Or revenue growth. Yes, right. We, we weren't really looking for what is it we're trying to control and why are we trying to control it and how and how does that really enable our reason for being. I think if you find companies that have done that, you find a very different model. Yeah, and I think that if you start thinking really long term, which is easier to do now, as I said before, because the future is getting here so quickly. If you go zoom out long term, you no longer have shareholders and customers in society on opposite sides of the table. Mm-hmm. We come to kind of a unity where we don't get to choose anymore because if you don't do good for society, you're, you're not going to exist in 10, 15 years and your shareholders are going to lose their money. If you only focus on shareholders, right, then you're going to diminish shareholder value. So I think we're moving away from, hey, make money, and then it's a good thing to do good. It is, if you want to make money, a smart thing for you to do is, is do good. Otherwise, the ecosystem will you know, eventually spit you out if you're not serving the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So that's a perfect segue, and I'm going to give you about six minutes to say this. So with your innovation hat on and looking forward way into the future, kind of I'm curious, what do you think companies need to be doing given the current crisis? Or if you don't want to do the immediate current crisis, do this kind of notion of once we are actually back to work and whatever the new normal looks like, what do we need to be doing and thinking at that moment? Yeah. Well, I think that the current crisis has really accelerated towards a future that we've been marching towards already for a long time. And we're just going to get there more quickly. And it has highlighted the import of being flexible, 
and adaptable to change. And if we lay out those seven barriers, I-N-O-V-A-T-E, what we'll see is an intent that we're going to move from having employees to having entrepreneurs. Under need, we're going to evolve from these complex plans that people can't understand to simple statements of purpose so that everyone's running towards the same opportunities. Options aren't going to come from boardrooms. They're going to come from hallways. Value blockers, we're going to move from having one business model to having an ecosystem of business models. Under uh, ACT, we're going to move from asking people to write business plans to allowing people to conduct experiments. And from teams, we're going to break down hierarchies into small, agile teams, as Hayer's done. And in environment, we're going to move. If you really think about it, we still organize our organizations like centrally planned economies, where one person or one body decides where resources go, where talent goes, what works gets done. And we know that that doesn't work. We're going to move from central planning to these platforms where people uh, can be empowered to find their passions, pursue opportunities, rally their resources to realize them for the betterment of of themselves, their organization, and the world. Wow, that was a lot to kind of absorb in one big whoosh there. But this notion that um, I think throughout all of it, it's the word you started with, this notion of flexibility, flexibility in everything, flexibility in how we define our business models, flexibility in terms of what a team is and what a team morphs from, flexibility in movement across one part of the organization to another organization, opening up ideas to come from a broader range of places, not just from the top of the organization filtering down. So the strategic ideas, if you will. In effect, what you're saying is moving much more towards an ecosystem thinking about who we are as a company and how we function as a company. Yes. Yes, right, exactly. And I think what you're pointing to is then where does that take us next is when you think of your organization as an ecosystem and then you add in your suppliers and your partners and your channels and your customers and you're working within that broader ecosystem, it is a very different mindset, a very different paradigm for what an organization is. And for me, that's an exciting place. That's where I want to work. That's where I want to play. That's where I want my kids to find their jobs is in that future. (laughs) But it's overwhelming to try to get your head around it, you know, especially if you're sitting there going, I have to make sure that we don't have too much risk in this business, that we're not going to get into a regulatory problem, that I'm not going to get a lawsuit from somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of risk to control for good reason. I don't just mean Uber control. And yet, when I start to think about this ecosystem, it feels like there is no even understanding of it, being able to map it out, let alone have any sense of control. Yeah, 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 it's true. Uh, we, we add the re- add regulatory frameworks into it as another part of the ecosystem, and there are a lot of entanglements um, that need to be untangled. Um, but that's true with any any new innovation. You know, when the Internet was introduced, it was really tough for us to get our heads around what it is and what it made possible. Going back to that fourth option, um, that fourth option uh, idea, why did it take Fosbury, you know, we could have, jumped over backward 15 years earlier. Why did it take so long? It's because it takes time for humans to get their heads around these new paradigms. Um, and But we're going to get there. We're going to get okay. there. Okay. All right. So in some ways, 
what I'm left with in this last bit of conversation is all of us who work inside organizations, whether I'm an employee or a leader in some capacity, that I need to get more comfortable with complexity, with things that I sort of can conceptually understand, but I don't actually really know all the moving parts of it, and allow that complexity to live and then be willing for ideas to come from all sorts of different directions. That's the sense that I'm left with. But boy, is that a hard ask for some people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There are, techniques, there are techniques that we can, uh, impl- there are techniques to implement to kind of reduce that risk that, you know, making really frugal, frugal I- innovation experiments so that we can reduce our risk as an example. But there are other techniques that are being introduced, language that's being adopted to mm-hmm. reduce the risk of the complexity so that we can embrace it with more courage. Okay. <laughs> courage is the watchword. I find it interesting in leadership literature, we didn't talk about courage for 15, 20 years. It was there kind of around 1990s, and then it just disappeared. And then it is back forefront about courage at the moment. I think that's a re- it's an interesting concept, how much that one is back. Okay, one minute left. Um, if you had a piece of advice for somebody joining a large corporation or in the middle of a large corporation and who cares about all these concepts and would like to see some innovation and some new ideas and some things flourish, apart from looking for a really good part of the organization to join, any other piece of advice? You know, I really encourage people to look at their corporation as their customer as opposed to a barrier to your customer. You don't have one customer, you have two. And just like you should love your customer, know your customer, understand your customer. When your customer says no, don't make them wrong, but ask, well, what is going on in their minds that this offer is not enticing to them? Do the same thing with your company, and you'll understand them better, and you'll get your innovations through. I often say to people who are struggling with an individual inside their organization, so in a coaching session, and they can't figure out what to do and how to behave to this person, how to get the best out of that relationship. And I often say, if that person were a customer, what would you be doing? Mm -hmm. And they'll give me a thing, and then I'll say, right, then go do that. It's an interesting strategy to know your company the way you would or treat your company the way you would treat a customer. Love it, know it, understand it, know how it's thinking, know why it works the way it works, um, know what's missing. And that is probably what turns you into where we started, which is an appreciation for the politics and in knowing how to navigate that, seeing joy in it. Yeah, very beautifully put. All right. Kayan, I think um, this is fascinating. I think the thing that still strikes me the most is thinking about as a person inside an organization, where do I find a leader that's willing to give me some resources to experiment, that's giving me a little bit of freedom to move outside of that individual's organization to kind of test and experiment, who's willing to give a little bit of time and attention, and who's willing to tolerate some risk and has a history of tolerating risk. I still think those four are just fabulous from the conversation. So my guest today is Kyan Krippendorf. The book we've been talking about is Driving Innovation from Within, a guide for entrepreneurial internal entrepreneurs. Kyan, thanks for being a guest. Thank you for having me, Wanda. And join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone.
thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.